1 John chapter number 5, and I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to read over some verses that we touched on last week. We're not going to use all of them, uh, but I do want to read them for context, and uh, then we're going to read on down to about verse number 13. The Bible says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would reveal the truths of your word to us tonight, that you'd apply them through the Holy Spirit. Father, that every one of us would find ourselves surrendered uh, to your word and to your spirit this evening. And Lord, that you'd just have liberty tonight to work in our midst. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for all of your blessings. Every day, Lord, you load us with benefits. And Lord, we just bless your name uh, as a result of it. God, just help us to live in a way that would shine the glorious light of your gospel to this lost and dying world. We'll be sure to thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Now, tonight in 1 John chapter number 5, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that we are going to be dealing with some of the most difficult scriptures in all of the Word of God. Uh, they are still the revelation of the mind of God. There's no portion of uh, the Word of God uh, that is given expressly with the idea of concealment. I understand that parables were given to conceal truths from those that would not receive them, to reveal them to those that would receive them. But I mean that the Word of God, as it sits before us, is a revelation. It's not a puzzle book. It's there to reveal the mind of God to us, and that is true of these passages as well. But I will also confess to you that there sure has been a lot of arguing and a lot of debating and uh, sometimes uh, even some fussing and fighting about the verses that we're going to read tonight. There's some great men of God that differ in opinion as to what I believe about this. Uh, I don't by any means claim to have the corner on truth, but I do believe the Word of God is true. And I do believe that as the Word of God reveals things to us, uh, inasmuch as we can be confident that our understanding of the Word of God is true, we can be confident that we have this truth. The Word of God is always true. It's us who's in fallacy sometimes. But I want us to just uh, point out the first verse and the fourth and fifth verse by way of introduction. Now, remember, as John is writing this to this persecuted group of believers, he is making a clear distinction all through the book of First John that there are two families, two groups of people in the world that we live in. There's the family of God and there is the family of the devil. 
Those are the two distinct families. Every single person in this world belongs to one of those two families. And whether you belong, which family you belong to, determines where your eternal state will be, whether you uh, will dwell with God for all of eternity or whether you will be uh, sent to the lake of fire for all of eternity, determined by which of these families that you're in. And John is very clear to tell us how we become a part of those families. Look at the language he uses in verse number 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and loveth him. everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now, John says this because of what he's about to say in the next two verses. But I think it's important to note the language that he uses, that of the new birth. I would propose to you that the new birth, being born again, is a thoroughly scriptural doctrine. Uh, You'll find it all through the Word of God, the teaching of being born again. In John chapter 3, Christ said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this idea of uh, conversion and of the new birth, and of a person at one point being lost and at another point being saved, and the differentiating factor being that they've accepted Christ and been birthed into the family of God, is a purely scriptural doctrine. But it's important to note that because of what he says in verse number 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Now, this is an encouraging truth because I'll go ahead and admit to you that this world that we live in seems awful bleak sometimes. And it's easy to feel like the whole world is stacked on one side and just us handful of believers is stacked on the other. I'd propose to you that there's uh, more folks that's saved than we realize, but there's a lot of folks that claim to be saved that aren't. Amen? I believe that just as God told Elijah that he had 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal, I still believe that God is saving souls. And I still believe that there are believers in this world that we live in. I don't believe it's just those that are in the walls of this church building tonight. I believe that there are plenty that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But let me qualify that by saying I do think there's also lots of folks that profess Him that don't possess Him. Lots of folks that say they're saved that are not saved. But it's easy to feel sometimes as though these odds are so stacked against us, and the odds are against us. Uh, you know, uh, all through the Bible, the Bible's a statistical book, and you can go through the Word of God, and you find that uh, that God, that one plus God equals a majority. Amen? Uh, in fact, nobody plus God makes a majority. So, yes, the odds are stacked against us. But John says that we have overcome the world through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says. He says, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, this is important. We've been talking in on Monday nights in our studies through Galatians uh, about uh, Paul's phrasing in the book of Galatians. He talks much about the faith of the Son of God. And that speaks about justification. In other words, uh, the faith of the Son of God and then being bestowed upon us, uh, being superimposed upon us, stamped upon us, and us being found in Christ. But this is not the language that John is using. He says our faith. So I believe that what John is saying here is that the entrance into the kingdom of God, the entrance into the family of God, comes through us putting our faith in Jesus Christ, and we are then birthed into this kingdom and into this family. Don't you believe that's what he's saying? He goes on to say in verse number 5, "...who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God." Don't you see how these three facts correlate and, and dovetail one with another? 
He says, who's the person that overcomes, or who's the person that's born of God? It's the person that uh, believes in Jesus Christ. Well, who's the person uh, that, you know, believes in Jesus Christ? They're the ones that uh, are born of God. And what is it that overcomes the world? Uh, Those that have been born of God, they're the ones that overcome the world through their new birth. And so I think that's important to note. It's not going to be the thrust of what I talk about tonight. But isn't it an encouraging truth to know that we are on the winning side? We've read the back of the book, amen. We know how this thing ends. We know that despite all of the world's efforts, despite all of the satanic conspiracy... And by the way, I do believe in a satanic conspiracy. I do believe that the devil has a grand and master plan. It's not grand as far as its uh, nature, but it's grand as far as its scale. And I believe that Satan does have a conspiratorial uh, plan against uh, that promised seed that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and I'm thankful to say that if we were to go to uh, the book of Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, we'd find that the devil's a defeated foe. He'll be cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years in chains and in darkness only to be set loose and to deceive the world, and then to finally uh, be cast into the lake of fire. I'm saying we've overcome this thing through our faith. That's not been us that's done it. It's been Christ, but we've placed our faith in Him. We've been counted in that family, and we're part of that winning side. Now, tonight I want us to spend a few moments, and I don't know how far we're going to get. I'm going to do my best to not uh, over-preach this, if that makes sense. Not that you can ever exhaust it, but I don't want to say anything except what the Lord would have me to say tonight. Because as he begins in verse number 6, we have uh, probably the most clearly defined passages concerning a New Testament doctrine that I adhere to, and I hope that you adhere to, and that is the Trinity of God. You won't find the word Trinity in the Word of God anywhere. And I've heard people use that as a uh, as some kind of proof that the Trinity doesn't exist or that it's some kind of ecclesiastically produced doctrine. People say, well, you know, the Trinity's not found anywhere in the Word of God. By the way, the, rap- the word rapture is not found anywhere in the Word of God. But the Bible does say we'll be caught up together with them in the air. Amen. Uh, the truth of the rapture is found all through the Word of God. And this is true of the Trinity as well. There are a lot of misnomers about the Trinity. Uh, sometimes people really believe these misnomers, and sometimes it's just uh, kind of vain attempts at explaining with earthly language something that is found only with a heavenly example. And I'll go ahead and tell you that there is no earthly representation, no natural representation of the Trinity. The closest thing we could come to is uh, our bodies were made in the image of God. We are triune creatures, but there's nothing tangible that could be observed through scientific means that is like unto the Trinity that the Bible teaches us about God. And notice some of the language that he uses in verse number 6. The Bible says, This is He, who's it speaking of? Jesus Christ, that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is true. Now, I know you came to church tonight to, to learn some things, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I'm going to confuse you real good, okay? Uh, because I want to tell you not only what I believe about this, but I want to tell you what others believe about it as well. There are varying opinions about what verse 6 means when it says water and blood. There's some that would have us to believe that that means the natural birth. I understand why they say that. In John chapter number 3, that kind of language was used concerning the new birth when Christ said that you'd have to be born of water and of the Spirit. 
And I'll go ahead and tell you that I do believe in John chapter number 3 that what is being spoken of is the natural birth. A lot of great men of God disagree with me, and I certainly don't rank amongst great men of God. Uh, But as I read the Word of God, it seems to me as though, uh, as uh, Christ says, except ye be born again, he's saying the natural birth isn't enough. You've got to be born naturally, but you also have to be born again spiritually. John did use that kind of language, but here's where I struggle with it. Look at what he goes on to say. He says in verse 7, and by the way, Mr. Schofield says this shouldn't be in here, but he's wrong, amen. He says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Here's the struggle I have with that uh, theory, with that hypothesis, is this. If these three things that are in earth bear witness to our knowing Jesus Christ, And that's what he would go on to say in verse number 10. He said, He that believeth on the Son of God hath this witness in himself. That's what he's talking about. How can we know whether we're saved or not? Uh, Then the natural birth is not by any means an evidence that you have been born again. In fact, everybody, you're going to find this hard to believe, but everybody born in this world uh, was born a natural birth. Amen? I mean, I don't know any of them hatched out of eggs. Uh, I don't know any of them that just started existing. We've all been born. Every one of us. And so if the idea of water being the natural birth is to represent to us, or the idea of water being the natural birth, then that tells me that in verse number 8 that that's part of that earthly witness. And I don't know that I can agree to that. There's a second belief about this. And I'll go ahead and tell you that this appeals to me the most, though I disagree with it. There's some that believe that this is referring to Christ's earthly baptism. And I would go ahead and tell you that in the context of the reading of this passage, that would make the most sense. But there's a reason I don't believe it, and I'll tell you in a moment. You see, as John writes this letter of 1 John, he's combating again. What is it? Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, they had three chief heresies. won't review all of them, but one of them was this, that Jesus was a human, that Christ was a divine spirit, and that that divine spirit descended upon him at his baptism and departed from him before his crucifixion. Certainly, that would explain why John places the emphasis on the blood here in verse number 6 when he says, not by water only, but by water and blood. It's almost as though John is trying to say to us, he was divine, not just at his baptism, but even at his crucifixion. Certainly, that would carry weight. Here's why I don't believe it, for the same reason that I struggle believing that water could represent the natural birth, because that then makes water baptism part of the threefold witness that we're born again. And I'll go ahead and tell you right now, there's lots of folks that have been saved that have never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. And there's lots of folks that have been dunked so many times that it's washed their tattoos off and they still ain't been born again. So I cannot believe that that's talking about Christ's baptism in the River Jordan. So that leaves me with a third uh, hypothesis. And by the way, there's a, there's a million beliefs. I could, I could shell out, uh, you know, a hundred more to you without even trying, but I don't want to confuse you that much. Let me just give you what I do believe. The Word of God speaks over and over again about water being a picture of the Word. Now, I will confess to you that there's two things that the water represents in Scriptures by and large. Three, actually. When it's represented as a large body of water, as a sea or as an ocean, many times it represents multitudes of people. Other times when it is shown to us as being a water that we consume, that we drink, it pictures for us 
the Holy Spirit of God. But when it's presented to us in the washing fashion, then it represents to us the Word of God. The Bible tells us that we are washed uh, by the washing of the Word. Uh, Paul wrote, I believe, to Titus and used that kind of language. I will confess to you that that presents no overwhelming theological problems, but it does read awkwardly in the text. I told you it appeals to me to believe that that reflects baptism, Christ's baptism, but that presents too many theological problems. You say, preacher, so what are you left with? Uh, old Mr., you know, uh, the greatest preacher you can ever quote, Sherlock Holmes, used to always say this, that uh, when you've eliminated all the impossibilities, whatever's less left, however unlikely, uh, is your only solution. I'm left believing that the water that's spoken of here does reflect the Word of God. Now, again, you may not believe that. You can cuss me under your breath or hit me in the nose after service if you wish. But as I read the Word of God, I find no theological obstacles that have to be overturned to believe that. And truly, I believe that there can be some important thoughts that John is conveying with that, because don't you believe that Jesus Christ did come by the Word of God? Uh, Hundreds of prophecies concerning Christ's incarnation. Uh, When He was uh, incarnated into this world, this world had plenty of head notice about it. Uh, The Bible's very clear that He came to fulfill all the things that were written about Him. He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. He said, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. There's no question he did come uh, according to the prophecy of the Word of God. We don't struggle with what the blood means. That reflects to us the idea of Calvary. Now remember, John is talking about witnesses here, records, testimonies. And in fact, that word record, testimony, and witness is all the same word. It's translated in different ways, and I think for very important reasons. Uh, But those words are closely connected one to another. And he's saying, what gives testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is the Christ? I think one of the things certainly that does that is that he fulfilled every prophecy ever written about him. Boy, that's that's tough to say. Statisticians can give you the numbers on the likelihood that someone would come and fulfill even one of his prophecies, let alone every one of them. I mean, the zeros would wrap around this world ten times to try to convey to you the number, uh, the percentage possibility, uh, the the minuscule chance that anyone would come and fulfill all those uh, prophecies, but Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. I mean, down to the very T, he fulfilled every single one of them. I believe that's good testimony that he's the Son of God, don't you? I believe also the cross of Calvary is good testimony that he's the Son of God. The fact that he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. Certainly when he came, he didn't come by water only, but also by blood. Uh, He said, for this reason came I into the world. He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. He came, and the Bible says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Calvary was not a, a misfortunate accident. Calvary was the predetermined uh, spot for uh, God to meet with uh, Christ and to deal out uh, man's punishment upon him. It's interesting that if you go through the Bible, uh, whenever the Bible talks about in the book of Genesis, Abraham going to offer Isaac, Uh, that it says that that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the spot, saw the place. And that place was later named Mount Moriah. 
And that very Mount Moriah, uh, we would know in the New Testament as being Jerusalem. Uh, you can believe differently if you wish, but I like to believe that the very place that that uh, altar had stood upon which he laid Isaac was the very, I'm talking about square foot of ground where they placed that cross for our Lord and Savior. When he came, he came to die for your sins and mine. And then what does it say? It says, the Spirit itself also beareth witness. Look what it says, verse 6. The Spirit uh, that beareth witness, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. There's no question. Uh, Christ said that the Spirit of God is upon me and hath anointed me to preach the gospel. All through uh, the gospel, we find the manifest working of the Spirit of God. I, I don't know quite how to explain this except just to try and do it. Uh, but do you understand that everything Christ did in the way of miracles, He did by the power of the Spirit of God? He did not necessarily do them. And I, I want to be careful that I don't try to set up boundaries and uh, and compartments in the Trinity that don't exist. Uh, but I don't believe He was doing those things in and of His own divinity, but by utilization and by the energy of the Holy Spirit of God, the third, third person of the Trinity. Uh, you say, why do you believe that? Well, He never worked a single miracle until He was baptized of John in the River Jordan and uh, the Spirit of God in the likeness of a dove came down rested upon Upon him. He said to his disciples, greater things than these shall ye do. Uh, why? Because he said, I go to my Father, but I'll send another comforter. It was by the working of the Spirit of God. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying the Spirit of God bore testimony to the fact that he was the Son of God. I've always thought this was interesting, never preached on it that I remember, but maybe I'll do it Sunday if the Lord will give me liberty too. But you find all through the Old Testament, uh, God, uh, Noah sent that, uh, that dove out of that ark and it never came back, did it? It was searching and searching and searching and searching. It was sent out to find a holy place to rest its foot and it never could until we come to the New Testament and we find that that dove rested upon the head of the Son of God. It had finally found that holy place where it could rest its foot. Now, you say, preacher, you're saying that's the same dove. I, I don't know whether it was the same dove or not. I think really that's not the point. The point is that that dove pictured the Holy Spirit of God resting in unction and in power. And uh, when Noah sent that thing out of the ark, it never could find a place till it found the head of the Son of God. It said, this is a place I can rest. This is a place I can anoint. This is a place I can work. So I think there's no question that the Spirit of God bore testimony to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. These are important questions. These were important questions in John's day because the Gnostics were claiming he was just a human. These are important questions today because if Jesus is the Son of God, then Muhammad is a liar. Allah is a fallacy. The Jehovah's Witnesses is a cult. The Mormons is a cult. Uh, the Roman Catholics are idolaters for worshiping Mary. Uh, the Buddhists are mystics because they're putting their faith uh, in that Eastern world system. And John chapter 14 is true, if these things are true, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These are important questions questions today that John is addressing. And so he addresses them very faithfully and he addresses them very aggressively. In verse number 7, he says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. If you underscore in your Bible, underscore that phrase, these three are one. If you don't, just memorize it real good. These three are one. That's the best explanation of the Trinity you'll ever find. These three are one. There's a lot of heresy, as I mentioned earlier, concerning the Trinity. I'm going to give you three of them that are very common uh, in this day that we live in. 
Uh, I was just reading an article the other day, and I'm, I can't remember when I mentioned I think I mentioned it in Bible study. Uh, but the real famous TV preacher, T.D. Jakes, uh, and he's a real charismatic fella. And that's not a pun, amen. I mean, he really is. And uh, he comes from the oneness Pentecostal background. And some of you may even have loved ones or friends or family that, that have belonged to oneness Pentecostalism. The reason it's called oneness Pentecostalism is because they are essentially Unitarian in their doctrine. You say, what's Unitarian? The belief that there's only one God, not one God in three persons. And they adhere to what they call modalism. Modalism. You say, what's modalism? Well, let, let me explain it how they would try to explain it, and then I'll show you the heresy. Uh, a oneness Pentecostal person would tell you that the Trinity is kind of like water. And water can exist in three separate distinct states. It can exist in liquid uh, or in solid or in gas form. That's modalism. Do you know why? Because it implies to us that it's all water. It's merely manifest in three different ways. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says there are three that bear record in heaven. He's not one God that manifests himself in three ways. In three modes, if you will. That's why they call it modalism. And there's a lot of folks that try to explain the Trinity. And, and they, it's not that they believe modalism, but they're just trying to explain something with earthly words that's a heavenly truth. Uh, and the best way you can do it is in the words that John gives us by divine holy inspiration. These three are one. You'll never really be able to explain it right uh, outside of that. There's modalism. Then there's what they call Arianism. Arianism would be akin to this, the idea that God is like the sun. And God the sun, he's like the heat that emanates from the sun. And God the spirit, he's like the light that emanates from the sun. This is a heresy because it implies uh, that two parts of the Trinity were created beings because those things do not exist until the sun generates them. The Bible teaches that both the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit are all co-equally eternal. They never began to exist. They were never created. In the beginning was the Word. Well, what was there with the Word? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Uh, Christ said this. He said uh, he was praying to his Father in John chapter 17. He said, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world was, before the world began. Uh, so the idea of Arianism, that, that God created these three parts of the Trinity or that God the Father created the other two parts of the Trinity, that's a heresy, that's a fallacy. Let me give you a third one. It's called partialism. Partialism is the idea that God uh, is equivalent to like an apple that has a core, that has the flesh, and that has the skin. But that's to denote that uh, God, that each part of the Trinity is not in and of themselves God, but that they uh, together have to become uh, God. Kind of people from my generation will remember Power Rangers, and that makes it all clear to them. Amen. <laughs> but uh, but the idea that they all have to combine to make God of sorts—that's partialism. That He is in three parts, but God is not in three parts. God is in three persons. You say, preacher, how would you explain it? I would say this. We have one eternal God that is eternally existent in three distinct persons. They are distinct in their persons and in their personality. They are co-equal and co-existent in their glory and in their majesty, and they are perfectly harmonious in their will. You say, explain that. <laughs> That's the best I can do. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You say, give me something else that's similar to that. Well, I'll give you something that, that, that is sort of similar. Man is a triune being. 
And I don't mean that he's got a head and torso and legs, but I mean that we have body and soul and spirit. And all three of those distinctly are man, but all three of those collectively are also man. Uh, Collectively, they are no more man than they are individually. I try to distinguish or separate those things while we're alive one from another, and it's almost impossible to do. And in the same way, uh, God cannot be separated one from the other. You say, what would you call all three of those gods collectively? Well, there is a Bible term for that, and it is the term Godhead. Godhead. And it does not denote any fuller deity or divinity being that they're referred to as being all three in one as opposed to three individually because the Holy Spirit of God is just as much God as God the Father is. We speak about the first, second, and third person of the Trinity. Uh, And I don't have a problem with that. I mean, we do that to differentiate, or sometimes if we're going to speak of them uh, without speaking of their roles, we have to speak of them as the, uh, excuse me, first, second, and third person of the Trinity. I don't have a, a qualm with that, but I think we've mistaken that for a pecking order, you understand. And it's not a pecking order. It's not that God the Father, He's the most God. And then God the Son, he, he's, he's pretty much God. And then God the Spirit, He's kind of half God. No, that, that's a fallacy. They are all three just as much God as each other. So John speaks very clearly about the Trinity here. We see the Trinity expressed a lot of times in Scripture. Uh, the Bible says, let us make man in our image in the book of Genesis. When, when God would go down uh, to see the Tower of Babel, He said, let us go down. Uh, and so the, the idea of a triune God is not a New Testament or even a, uh, and when I use the term Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic, but I mean in the sense of a church age doctrine. It's always existed. God has been a triune God since before the world uh, ever existed. God will always be a triune God. Long after uh, the empires of this world have crumbled and fallen and the theologians have been silenced, God will always be a triune God. So he speaks about these three witnesses in heaven. Let me give you some truths that will encourage you. Why is he talking about them? Because he's talking about the witness and testimony that we're born again. Do you know that each part of the Trinity, or each, listen to me, speaking heresies after I just condemned them, each person of the Trinity bears testimony and witness in their own unique way that we've been born again? You know, the Bible says this uh, about God the Father, that he knoweth them that are his. Uh, The Bible says uh, that we have this seal that God knoweth them that are His. God the Father knows us. We kind of have a tendency sometimes, uh, and I understand that Christ is our mediator, and I understand He's our advocate, and I understand He's our intercessor, but sometimes we have this idea uh, that here's us, and then here's Jesus, and then here's God the Father. And God the Father don't want nothing to do with us, but because of Calvary, He's got to put up with us because of Jesus. But that's false, friend, uh, because you and I, it's not like here's us, and then here's Jesus, and here's the Father. It's like, here's the Father, and then here's Jesus, and then here's us, and we're all in one, and He's in us, and we're in Him. Uh, We are sealed by God the Father just as surely as we are by the Holy Spirit. He knoweth them that are His. There's no question that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God under the day of redemption. God has written our name down, the Holy Spirit of God. He's the witness. He's the earnest of our redemption, as the book of Ephesians says. He bears proof and testimony in heaven that we belong. You say, how does He do that? The Bible says God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son uh, into our spirit, and we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, The Spirit of God itself maketh intercession for us. Romans uh, chapter number 8, with groanings and utterings which cannot be understood. Uh, The Spirit of God bears testimony in heaven that we're children of God. 
But then what about the Word of God? The Bible says, He that that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. The Word of God itself bears testimony in heaven. You say, the Word of God's in heaven? Of course it's in heaven. It's settled forever in heaven, the Bible says. And so the Word of God, the fact that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, we're known by the Father of God, and we're born testimony of by the Word of God, by His promise. Heaven knows our name if we've been born again. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. And then he tells us of an earthly representation of this truth. He says, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood... And these three agree in one. Now, here again, this is why I have trouble believing that the water spoken of is the natural birth. Because the natural birth does not bear testimony that we've been born again. And here's why I struggle with the idea that the water reflects baptism. Because baptism in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily bear witness that we've been born again. But notice what it says in verse number 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. I believe that all three of these things are present in the believer and in his life. Notice the first thing that's spoken of. It says the Spirit. God hath sent His Spirit into us. We cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God. Can I tell you the the first and best evidence that you've been born again is that the Spirit of God resides within you. That's the best testimony. That's the best witness. You say, preacher, does that mean I'm never going to do anything wrong? (laughs) No, no, far from it. It doesn't mean that, but it means when you do something wrong, the Spirit of God's going to let you know you've done something wrong. Then it says the Word. The Word, it says, or it says the water, let me be clear. It says the Spirit and the water. If I believe that the water reflects the Word of God in verse number 6 in the prophecies of Christ's coming, I believe also that it represents the Word of God in the believer's life. And this seems to fit theologically the best in my mind. You say, what do you mean by the Word or the water? Well, the Bible speaks in James chapter 1 and verse 21 of the engrafted Word. You know what that word engrafted means? It means inborn or instilled. The Word of God has been placed within us if we've been born again. Uh, you ever notice how there will be times when you'll be witnessing someone, you'll quote a passage of Scripture that you had no idea you even knew. Uh, you ever notice sometimes you'll uh, make a decision to do something wrong, God will bring a passage of Scripture to your mind you didn't even know you knew. And I'm not saying we absorb the Word of God by proxy or by osmosis. We only absorb it by reading. I'm aware of that. Uh, but in a very unique way, God places through the Holy Spirit His Word within the believer. As we read it, it sticks. The lost man can read the Word of God and go out and sin and never even give thought to the Word of God. But you and I, because we have the Spirit of God within us, when we go to sin or when we do what's wrong or even when we do what's right, the Word of God bears testimony and witness within us through the Holy Spirit of God. There's a third thing. The Bible says the blood. I believe this is applied in two different ways, and we're running out of time. I'm not going to get as far as I wanted to, but that's all right. Uh, I believe this is applied in two different ways. One, in the sense that we have been born again, forgiven, and the Spirit of God bears witness and testimony to that forgiveness in our heart and life. We have been born into the family of God. We live in a different way than other people do as a result of it. But can I give you a second thing that I believe that refers to? And I'll close with this thought. Uh, Look in chapter number 1. Chapter number 1. And I believe the blood also refers to this. It says in verse number 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of His Son Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. It says in verse number 3, 
Uh, it says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I believe the blood being spoken of in chapter number 5 also reflects the idea of fellowship with God to us. Listen, every single born-again believer has a relationship with God. It may be a bad relationship. It may be an oft-neglected relationship. But every one of us, we have a keen awareness that God exists, that He's saved us, that we've been redeemed. If we spend enough time talking to God, I'm convinced He'll start talking to us. If we, if we try to push God away, there'll come a time. And I understand God will leave us to our own devices in a lot of ways. I'm very aware of that. But there's no question. People have said before and used this analogy, and I'm done after this, but uh, people have used this analogy. You know, how do I know that I'm married? I don't know that I'm married because I wear a wedding ring. I don't know that I'm married even necessarily. Now, listen carefully. I remember my anniversary. I remember September 19th, 2009. It was a day I'll never forget, I hope. But that day, I hope, <laughs> but listen to me now, that was the day I got married. But just because I got married on that day, that doesn't mean I'm married today. Isn't that right? I'm trying to be careful. I don't want to say anything that, I, that, that, I, that is not true. I'm not implying we can lose our salvation because we can never lose our salvation. And there's no questioning. Nothing changed what happened on that day. But the real testimony of how I know, how I know that I'm married, it's not the fact that I went to an altar on that day. That day's important. That was the day that it happened. But there's a relationship day in and day out. That's a witness to the fact that we're married. Again, I'm not implying that if you cease to have the fellowship with God you need to, you lose your salvation. You know me well enough. No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying this, that that fellowship that we have with God, that's a good witness and testimony that we have been born again of the Spirit of God, born into the family of God. That fellowship that we have one with another. These three things, the Bible says, are in earth. So this can't be talking about Christ's baptism. That's not in earth anymore. Uh, it can't be talking about simply natural birth because that doesn't reflect uh, that, that witness. The natural birth doesn't bear witness to that. But the Word of God engrafted into the believer the Spirit of God indwelling in the believer, and the fellowship that we have involving the believer with God, all three of those things bear witness and testimony that we truly have been born again.